Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is a Draft Deep Dives day. So I am here with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, Nick. Somehow there's only a couple games left in the NBA regular season. Every day we inch closer to the draft. It's springtime. What's not to love? Every day we inch closer to the draft sounds like the Sacramento Kings-Minnesota Timberwolves joint motto. Best time of the year, except when it isn't. Best time of the year, except for the first day of the NBA year, because there's still a little bit of hope left that hasn't been extinguished. Yeah, it, it, that 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 one kind of depends on the year. Yeah, some some years there's no hope <laughs> right from the start. And on that incredibly uplifting note, let's move on to the draft talk. So today we are going to go through the number nine through number 11 players on Tyler's big board, which is available on hashtag basketball.com if you somehow still haven't checked that out yet. But we're starting today at number nine with Zaire Williams, who is a crazy athlete with a really solid looking jump shot, 6'8 and 175, 180 pounds, incredibly skinny, but he's got the athleticism. He's got a good jump shot. The thing that surprised me the most going back and looking at his film from this year is he's a really underrated playmaker. He's got solid playmaking instincts and every once in a while he'll throw a pass that's right up there with the elite vision guys like Cade at the top of this draft you know he doesn't see those plays all the time but he really does have great playmaking potential in my mind the biggest problem with Zaire is that he just had a miserable year on and off the court at Stanford as we've touched on a couple of times but I really believe in his upside, especially on the offensive end, and the kinds of issues with defense and consistency hopefully will be less of an issue at the NBA level slash any level beyond this year at Stanford, which was just impossibly tough for him. But what are your thoughts on Zaire and his overall game? So besides BJ Boston, Zaire Williams has probably had the biggest drop off between preseason perception um compared to kind of current standing on most big boards um i know a lot of places i've seen him have majority i would say probably have him closer to 20 than they do to 10 um and if you go based solely on what his encore production was this year i i don't think that's necessarily wrong either um however i give i'm I'm giving Zaire a, an extraordinarily long leash with, you know, what we saw because of, I think this was really the worst case scenario this season for him. I, I mean, he started the year with a fluke bike injury that made him wear this bulky knee brace for a month or two. Then, you know, he had two funerals that he had to attend in the middle middle of the season and due to COVID protocols, he couldn't even come back to the team for it was like three or four weeks. And throughout all of that, they're traveling to the Warriors G League facility to play all of their games. They didn't have a weight room. Practices were super weird. There's absolutely zero stability this season for him. And despite all that, I thought he showed a lot of really, really intriguing flashes that would make me fascinated to take him at the back end of the lottery um and even top 10 hence my ranking of him um i i i think the shot making will get there uh once you know with, with that healthy knee and more consistency being able to get in gyms and you know really work on it uh i i think he's a really good rebounder despite his kind of skinny frame and like you touched on with the playmaking um i he won't be used as like a primary initiator, but passing on the move and kind of creating out of the pick and roll and being that secondary or tertiary guy um, is really important for him going forward. And a really, re really intriguing skill that I wasn't anticipating seeing from him um, because he is a really willing and eager passer, which can help open up a lot of, a lot of different things in an NBA offense. You mentioned the flashes, and that I think is what stands out to me. 
at his best moments during his freshman year at Stanford, he showed that he has one of the highest ceilings in this class, maybe the highest ceiling of anyone outside of that top five group. And yes, the shot making was not exactly efficient by any stretch of the imagination, but he's shown that he has all the tools to get to those sorts of shots. You know, there are some guys, certainly one that we'll be discussing later today, who doesn't necessarily have all of the tools in his toolkit that Zaire has. You know, he has the athleticism, he has the size, even though he definitely could stand to put on 30 pounds as soon as possible. But, you know, he's shown that he has all the sort of baseline level tools. And, you know, really depending on who ends up around him, what team ends up picking him, you know, his development could go in a variety of different ways. Whereas there are some guys who just don't have the elite level athleticism that Zaire does, or they're six one and can't really use that athleticism in the same way as a bigger guy who can either post up smaller guys or blow by slower guys. You know, Zaire has that kind of upside. And if we saw the downside risk this year like if i can't imagine he could possibly have a worse situation in his first year in the nba than he did at stanford right and if that's what the floor looks like for him i feel very comfortable taking him in the middle of the lottery yeah and i think an important thing that you touched on there was that he has the baseline tools and the counter to being high on zaire uh right now is that that's kind of all where like where he is in most aspects of his game is it's kind of just the baseline where you know he, he isn't a high level ball handler um he can he can turn the ball over a lot his defensive consistency goes in and out um and obviously he needs to add a lot of strength but i think those are all products of his situation this year whereas you know i once he's in an NBA program, I fully expect him to get stronger. All teenagers do. The kid couldn't go in a weight room all season. I'm not worried about that in the long run. The ball security, I think that come. I think that's kind of a mix of not really having a consistent practice schedule. Yes, he needs to tighten up the his ball handling and improve his decision making. But it also shows me that he's willing to t- to make risks when making passes and setting up his teammates and running the offense. So I, I do think there's a lot of good there as well. And the defensive consistency, I, I was more encouraged than discouraged, I guess, when it comes to that, because there were a lot of times where he competes really hard on that end. He just needs to really figure out and fine tune his navigation of screens and really finishing out the play where he would shut down a guy's first or second move. But then if they hit him with a third move or something like that, he would come out of his stance and think that he finished the play and the guy would get past him. So, you know, it it was a lot of things that you see from guys who aren't consistently in the gym and guys who are just, who are young players and have gone by a lot just because of their physical tools and while he has done that, he also has that mental aspect of that he wants to compete, he wants to improve, he wants to be better. So I, I'm just really, really fascinated in the type of player he could become. Him finishing plays on the defensive end is a concern, but I feel like most of the rest of my concerns with his defense are things that will improve drastically once he does get in an NBA weight training program. I mean, him dying on screens, I think, is a lot more due to him just being tiny than it is— well, tiny is the wrong word, skinny, because he's 6'8", but— you know, him being 6'8", 175, 180, I think has a lot more to do with him dying on screens than any sort of effort level concerns, which, you know, ultimately, given how much of defense is really just putting in the effort on every play, I think it's much better to have weight concerns, certainly, than it is to have effort concerns. Yeah, yeah, no, I I totally agree. It was more, my concern with that wasn't necessarily an effort standpoint, because I, I do think that the effort, the mentality, the willingness to defend is there. It's more so just really locking in for the entire possession and, you know, getting those nuances of how to get around or through a screen or when to go under, just how to avoid contact. Because like you said, right now, he's not fighting through 
anything because he's he's too small or he's too slender right now but you can tell that he wants to and he wants to get through he wants to defend he wants to contest so you know like you said as he adds muscle as he adds strength strength as he gets more coaching i i would be stunned if it doesn't improve so I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of ceiling and floor for Zaire. And as we saw it his freshman year at Sanford, the floor is probably not going to be a second or third contract player. But I think that if I had to put money on someone outside of the top five group making multiple all-star teams, I might go with Zaire. I think he's got the best chance sort of outside of that top group to really be a star or even a superstar if everything pans out. Yeah, I don't hate that. If, if, if all his tools hit, if all his development goes the way that we kind of expected it to coming out of high school, I mean, he, he has the frame for it. He has the basketball IQ for it. He has the versatility for it. So it, it, it absolutely wouldn't surprise me if, you know, if he did make multiple all-star games, but then, you know, the counter to that is that what we saw at Stanford actually wasn't the floor, and it was closer to, you know, his median outcome than being an outlier in the other direction. So I I, I do think that Stanford was, you know, bottom 10th percentile of what his season could have looked like this year, but that would be the counter argument, at least if I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, that's fair. I just think that given the flashes that I saw from him at Stanford and given the situation that he was in at Stanford, I think it's definitely closer to like a bottom 10 percentile outcome than anywhere near the halfway point for what could have been expected from him. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree, just to be clear. But um, and yeah, I I think he has some really intriguing kind of two-way potential um i i do think it will take a couple years um to to really for him to really hit his stride it wouldn't surprise me if his first year or two we see a pretty big learning curve just because adjusting to the nba physicality with his current frame um and you know who who knows maybe he enters training camp next season with 20 pounds of muscle um but last we saw him I, I do think it'll be a learning curve, but I, I think he has that basketball IQ and that willingness and desire to be really good where he, he will be a really, really productive wing in the NBA. So sort of taking a broad view of this, taking a few steps back, how do you view Zaire as a prospect overall? And I'll start I feel a lot more confident in putting him in the middle of the lottery sort of after going through a deeper film dive in preparation for talking with you today. I think the flashes that he's shown, especially with the playmaking, which was really more pleasantly surprising than sort of what I expected out of him, given those playmaking flashes and his, you know, upside as an athlete and as a shooter, I would feel, again, very confident in putting him in the middle of the lottery. As I've teased a few times on the podcast, I am putting together uh, Baby's first big board at some point over the next few weeks or so. And Tyler will mock me mercilessly once I finally come out with that. But right now, I have Zaire at 8th on my board. And I'm pretty comfortable with saying that I don't think he'll slide out of the top 10. I think the upside for him is high enough that I think it's worth it to take a flyer on him, especially if you're one of those teams sort of towards the back part of the lottery where, you know, they're almost playoff teams that just need another superstar to get over the next level. I think he could really be that for a team in the latter part of the lottery. I definitely think he's one of the best kind of home run swings outside of the top five. And he he reminds me a lot of like the Michael Porter Jr. situation and the Jaden McDaniels situations, not as players, but where it's on draft night where we just keep see them, seeing them fall, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's injury concerns or attitude concerns or whatever, 
you know, where we just kind of see Zaire fall spot by spot by spot. And it just, every time he falls, it just seems like a bigger and bigger steal. And then he's going to go to a playoff team around 20 and three years from now, will be having, be making an immense impact and everyone thinking, how did we just let that happen? So I, I definitely see him as a top 10 talent. I think that he has one of the better chances of being an excellent player from this draft class. Um, but I'm seeing everyone else's views on it. I wouldn't be surprised if he falls closer to the back end of the first, which I, I think would be absurd and a really massive steal. All right, well, let's move on now to the number 10 prospect on your board, Jaden Springer out of Tennessee. He's a 6'4 guard, sort of more of a shooting guard, I think, than a point guard, but 205 pounds, definitely NBA-ready body in terms of bulk. He's a really good defender. He's in the 90th percentile in synergy in terms of defensive numbers last year. I think I'm a little lower on Springer than you are. In fact, I think this might be our biggest disagreement in the lottery so far. So give me the sell. Why are you thinking Jaden Springer at 10th overall? So before I do, um, where are you higher on Keon Johnson? Slightly, yes. That's that's really funny because it seems like everyone everyone seems to be picking one of the two. And wherever they have one it's almost the inverse every time. Um, but I, I really like Springer. So for starters, uh, I think he's one of the youngest players in this draft, uh, which is always encouraging a lot more time and room for development and growth. Um, I think he's a really fascinating creator off the dribble, not in the sense of how he creates a ton of space with his footwork and step backs, you know, it's almost the inverse of like, of what we talked about with Trey Mann, where Trey Mann is creating two yards of space with a step back. Jaden Springer is going to bully you to, to his spot. He's going to get to his spot. You will not stop him and he'll rise up over and through you. It's a really physical game that kind of reminds me of, you know, it's DeMar DeRozan-esque where he knows where he wants to get to and he's going to get there. And then once he does penetrate the lane, he's really good with those interior dump-offs or and kickouts. He needs to improve his kind of more traditional playmaking. I He doesn't pass guys open really much at all, which is why I don't think he's going to be or projects as a point guard because I see him more in that off-ball role. Um, but once he does penetrate, once he gets that defender on his hip out of the pick and roll or attacking a closeout, um, his decision-making and ability to create out of that, I think is really special, especially for an 18 year old. And I do think that that shot really is going to come along. Um, I know he shot, or I believe he shot over 40% from, three this season but is on very low volume but i i like the mechanics i think it translates and i would be surprised if he's you know at least not an average shooter so he shot 44 percent this season on 46 total attempts so fewer than two attempts per game i don't buy the shot at a 44 percent level but i think he's a decent enough shooter i agree with you on that front Where I have pause with Jaden Springer is sort of a lot of what you mentioned about his bully ball abilities and him being able to get to his spots. Basically, all of his shots around the rim, he's getting there by just putting his shoulders into guys and pushing them backward. And I just don't think he's going to be able to do that at the NBA level to anywhere near the same extent that he was able to at the college level. And He's solid in that, you know, 8 to 10 foot range, but ultimately, if he's not getting all the way to the rim at the NBA level, you know, as you said, he's not passing guys open. You know, if he's not getting open looks for other players because defenses are collapsing around him, it's going to be harder for him to make plays for other guys, and I just don't think his bully ball style is going to work anywhere near as well against NBA defenders as it did against defenders at the college level. 
I, I I get that, and I don't really expect it to translate immediately, like most of these guys, because rookies tend to suck in general. Um, but the fact that he has that mentality of I'm going to be stronger than you, I'm going to out physical you, I would rather be try I'd rather be able to teach a guy how to execute, you know, a more effective step back than try and change his mentality of all right, go in, create contact, get through the line, get your defender in the air, you know, create contact that way, move them. You know, I, I think it's a lot easier to change and develop skills than it is to change and develop personalities and habits where guys who are averse to contact completely avoid it. And I think convincing them to really go in among the trees and get hacked or finish through guys uh, consistently, I, I think that's a much, much more difficult task. You mentioned the mentality, and for me, I think I see that a lot more on the defensive end, where we were talking about Zaya Williams dying on screens. Jaden Springer does not die on screens. And, no. you know, his defensive effort, and I think his athleticism works a lot better on the defensive end than it does on the offensive end, because <laughs> he's not all that quick, but he's big and he's strong, and he might not be able to push especially if he's going to be a shooting guard he might not be able to push six 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 seven guys who are heavier than him around on the offensive end but I think it's also going to be a lot harder to move him off his spot on the defensive end than it might be for him to get pushed off his own spot on the offensive end which you know his defensive upside is encouraging for me and I think is the reason why I'm not lower on him than I am honestly yeah it, it's really it is really fun watching him and Keon kind of play defense at the same time this this season because they're they're very different defenders. Um, and like Keon is this uber athletic, explosive defender who's kind of flying all over the place, and Springer is much more kind of controlled, compact, you know, doing his job. And you know, when when he closes out, he closes out under control. He can he contains the drive. He doesn't have as many of these like highlight. He's not much of a defensive playmaker, which can, you know, often skew people's perception of defensive impact. Um, but he's always in the guy's face. He's always where he needs to be. He's great perimeter footwork. And like you said, he he's not going to get bullied off his spot at all. But he's he is impressively strong for his size position and age. So I did want to go back to the footwork and the mid-range footwork for a little bit because I think the easiest way for Jaden Springer to prove me wrong, and to be clear, it's not that I'm low on him. You know, I still think he's very clearly a first-round talent and a mid-first-round talent, but the way that he does better than I think he will on the offensive end is if he gets just a little bit better at drawing fouls, because he's great at getting guys in the air and, yeah. you know, confusing defenders, getting them wrong footed. And if he can turn that into a little more frequent foul drawing rather than, you know, a lot of the sort of eight foot fadeaways that he tended to take at Tennessee, that's, I think, where his offensive game can grow to the kind of level that I would want it to be for a starting NBA guard which is what I think you would have to hope for if you're taking him at 10. Sure. I, 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 it would be, it's almost like he should go this summer and just hang out with Moses Moody and Sharif Cooper and just learn from them. How do you guys get to the line eight times a game? Because he gets defenders in the air with shot fakes and, you know, eye movement in similar ways that Moody does. Um, and I remember we talked about that when we went over Moody where Moody does an awesome job of getting to a spot in the mid range and then getting the defender off his feet and getting to the line with these and Springer. It would be nice if Springer studied that film or, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, he reminds me a lot of DeMar DeRozan's kind of physical mid range game. DeMar DeRozan is awesome at getting to the line. Springer needs to do more of that. So I, I, I think that's an, another thing where, as a coach, you can kind of be like, hey, jump into the sky once you get him in the air instead of fading back. So I, I think that's more of just 
a tendency that can be altered a little bit um, because he's clearly not afraid of contact the way he kind of attacks the rim and defends. So what are your thoughts on ceiling and floor for Springer? And admittedly, I'm lower on him than you are, but I think his floor is certainly a lot higher than Zaire's just because of the defensive prowess. But I don't think he's really going to be more than like a fourth or fifth starter in terms of ceiling. Do you have higher hopes for what his eventual upside might be than that? Yeah, so for floor, I, I kind of see like a, a Jeremy Lamb-esque shooting guard where he can kind of float in and out of the starting lineup, but mostly he's kind of a, a quality sixth or seventh man off the bench who can come in, you know, knock down open shots, get to the rim, play some defense. Um, you know, I, I've dropped the, I've dropped DeRozan's name a couple times. I, I think that's his, you know, 95th 100th percentile outcome um where he could be this awesome kind of ball dominant scorer um but modernized a little more where he's kind of dragged out and taking more threes um i i i do worry a little bit about how low a volume the threes were i'm hoping that's more just coaching and directive from that end um because I, I do like his mechanics. I think it should translate and I think he should be a good shooter. But if that never comes along, um, I'm, I'm going to worry kind of quite a bit about what type of player he'll be. Honestly, this is asinine, but I feel like I have to say it anyway. DeMar DeRozan is three inches taller than him. And I think that makes a huge difference for yeah, potential upside. I mean, you could play DeRozan. At, you know, he's shown some serious playmaking chops as a four in San Antonio. And earlier in his career, when he was in Toronto, a lot of his mid-range footwork got to benefit him because he was just posting up guys who were 6'2", 6'3". And shooting guards tend to be taller than that now just because you know sure. nba players in general tend to be taller but that's yeah that's that's a separate point i think really the thing that i want to get to with that is just that i think given that kind of mid-range game those extra three inches really do make a difference yeah that that that's totally fair and that and that part of his game is really where that foul drawing and you know taking advantage of those shot fakes um, in that mid range is really going to come into play because I, I, I think that's what it, it is a valid concern that if he doesn't kind of adjust that or realize the potential and how much that could improve his scoring arsenal, then he, his impact is going to be really, really reduced. So now again, just sort of a bird's eye view of how you view him as a prospect overall. So in my very, very preliminary big board right now, I have him at 17. So not that much lower than you, but you know, I think of him more as a mid first round guy than a clear lottery yeah. talent. And I think that's just, you know, because of the disagreements that we've already discussed, namely our confidence in his ability to score inside most of all, I think. Yeah, and I I I get that. Um, I I I just I'm real. I just think he's such a unique player for his age. You know, so much of perimeter scoring has evolved into this finesse game of step backs and side steps and floaters and um, you know all, all this stuff that we see from all of the high level scoring guards, and we see so little of that physicality. It's just a really unique kind of skill set that's almost a throwback to an error era or or two ago. Um, and I think if he can really harness that while also continuing to evolve his outside shot and modernize that part of his game as well, I, I think he could be just a, a fascinating off-ball guard. All right, moving on from our biggest disagreement so far to our biggest agreement in that we both love Davion Mitchell and have loved him since long before Baylor became the national title winner. 
He is an exceptional athlete. He's got a ridiculous first step. His three-point shot really jumped this year in the kind of way that usually makes me wary for prospects. But, I mean, it jumped from 33% to 45%, and it jumped in a way, you know, both in terms of his confidence, in terms of the variety of three-point looks that he was taking. It made me feel confident that he's not a 33% shooter anymore, even though that's usually something that I'm a bit more wary of. Defensively, I mean, you talked about Jaden Springer not really being a defensive playmaker. Davion Mitchell is a defensive playmaker, a serious defensive playmaker. So I think that we're not thinking of him as the sixth pick, as some people have after the tournament. But I don't think that means that either of us are not incredibly high on him, nor have we not been incredibly high on him basically since the start of this year. So, you know, that's some Davion Mitchell praise from me, but your turn. Go ahead. Why are you so high on Davion Mitchell? One of my biggest pet peeves since March Madness has ended is all the people who are anti-Davion Mitchell just saying, oh, classic March Madness bump, you know, oh, I can't believe we're doing this again, guys, an awesome tournament. Yeah, that's why I made yes. sure to say that we both loved him since the beginning of this process. Right, up front. right. So, and he, yes, he was freaking incredible in the tournament. The thing is, he did that all season. So, people who are oh well, just f- five, six games of excellence, and you just throw him in the lot, throw this twenty-three-year-old in the laundry. It's no, he did this all season, and he was awesome defensively last season too. It it's it infuriates me and just shows who actually watches games and who doesn't, but I digress. Davion Mitchell is a stud. Um, I Let's start with, with the defense, because I oddly think that that is the most fun part of his game to watch. Uh, his perimeter footwork is the best I've seen in a while. Um, it's like he's a psychic and already knows what the ball handler is going to do before they even do it. He beats them to the spot all the time. Uh, he forces steals, uh, he rebounds, he boxes out, he always competes. Uh, the the charge, He draws a ton of charges on the perimeter and not the Bush League charges where he slides over under the hoop at the last second and the guy and just falls over. He's actually beating his defender to the spot, defender runs him over, ball's going the other way. He is such a good defender that at the minimum – he he will be the best point of attack defender from this class. The shooting I have mixed emotions about because I, I do tend to buy it. Um, just the variety of ways that he scored this season um, and the usage and the volume he did it on is really encouraging to me. He, you know, shot off the catch on standstill, on the move, on step backs, on mid-range pull-ups. It was in such a variety of ways that I, you know, I don't expect him to be a forty-four percent three-point shooter, but I do kind of expect him to be in the high thirties and above average and a threat. And then combining that with his absurd first step at getting to the rim, I, I think he could be, you know, he could really give defenses a ton of trouble. The other thing with his shot, you know, we mentioned this with not really buying Jaden Springer as a 44% three-point shooter, and part of that is because he'd taken 46 attempts all year. Divion Mitchell shot 141 three-pointers last year, which, you know, isn't a large enough sample size given how widely three-point shooting varies. It isn't a large enough sample size to declare, oh, he's going to be a 40-plus percent three-point shooter. But as you said, I would be very surprised if he's not a high 30s shooter from deep pretty quickly in the NBA and not just, you know, a high 30s shooter on nothing but completely wide open attempts, but, you know, high 30s shooter on a decently difficult diet of three-point shots as opposed to just only the most wide open of wide open looks, which, you know, that's really encouraging for his offense given his first step and his really solid handle as well. Yeah, so I, I, I just want to run through a couple of numbers with his jump shot. So 
79.1% of his jump shots came from three. He ranked in the 90th percentile in points per possession on those three-point jump shots. Of his jump shots, 38% of the time he shot off the dribble, he ranked in the 95th percentile. On the unguarded catch-and-shoot attempts, he ranked in the 90th percentile. That's season-long numbers on high volume. That's not a hot tournament run. It's I, I understand being worried about his shot not really being at the same level it was all year. That's fair. NBA line was different. I, I think the notion of, oh, well, he's not this elite free throw shooter gets overblown. Um, I think that's more indicative of kind of younger guys and hoping whether or not they'll develop when a guy does it at such a high volume in such a variety of ways. I, I find it so difficult to not buy in at least somewhat. So it he, he saw nothing but success when he when he shot this season. And I, I just, I don't understand the mental gymnastics some people are doing to try and go against that notion. So we've had the free throw debate already when discussing someone who will definitely be debating a lot more in the weeks to come. But the thing with the free throw shooting is I rely on it more than you do, and I admit that. But a lot of that for me is because I don't want to rely on even smaller sample sizes of three-point shooting than Mm -hmm. 141 attempts. Like, say, relying on Jaden Springer's 46 attempts as a three-point shooting baseline is not something that I would believe in all that heavily. But, you know, the difference with Davion Mitchell is he's got a pretty high volume of attempts from three-point range. And, you know, more to the point, it's not just that he shot 70 open threes and made 30 of them. You know, it's a whole variety of different shots. And, you know, on a Baylor offense where there were other guys, you know, Jared Butler in particular, that were obviously drawing a lot of attention, But, you know, the flip side of that also is that Mitchell was not just creating on-ball three-pointers for himself. You know, he also was getting open for catch-and-shoots, running off screens in a way that encourages me for his long-term NBA fit in terms of the kinds of guys he's going to be able to play alongside. You know, he's a good playmaker, but if you put him with someone who's more of a primary type, like... I think I mentioned this before, but my God, could you imagine Davion Mitchell and Luca as the backcourt of the Dallas Mavericks? Oh my God, that'd be so much fun. Yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 I agree that I don't think he'll be the primary point guard. Um, and given his size, that I, if you want to make that argument of why to be lower on him, I can buy more into that. Um, going just to go back to your the the free throw example. Um, I, I, I do think that it can be useful when we look at guys like a Jaden Springer who shot such low volume on three is 18, but shot a hundred free throws at 81%. That combined with the mechanics and my test and all of that, that helps me project and believe that he can be, be a better shooter. When Davion Mitchell makes this absurd 32% to 44% from three point percentage, and the free throw numbers don't really change. I the the volume is what I'm looking at there. It's not on low volume. If he was taking one three pointer a game instead of almost five, then yeah, I, I would struggle to really buy into it. I think it'd be more fluky. But on almost five att- five threes a game and a pretty consistent free throw rate throughout his career. I, I just would be stunned if this dude just ends up sucking at shooting. I mean, he also jumped up from 47% on two-pointers to 57% on two-pointers. You know, it wasn't just that he got super hot from three and that changed everything. He just looked better shooting from everywhere on the floor. Yeah, it, it was an all-around shooting improvement in every area of the floor except the free throw line. So that is when I push against the notion of, oh, well, he's kind of an average free throw shooter, so he'll suck. That's when I think that trope gets played out and is used incorrectly because I his, his free throw percentages throughout his career have been in the mid to high 60s. There isn't much fluctu- fluctuation there. So 
I'm guessing that that's more of a mental thing because there isn't anything inherently wrong with his shooting mechanics. You know, from his first year at Auburn, he shot 28% from three. His first year at Baylor, he shot 32%. Then it jumped to 44. The volumes, the usage constantly increased for him. And so did the results. So I'm, I'm buying all in that he will be an above average shooter. The other funny thing is also that he doesn't get to the free throw line very much. So the irony of Mitchell right. is that he actually took more than twice as many threes as free throws <laughs> this past season. So right. the sample size issue is almost more on the free throw side than the three point shooting side. I think really, honestly, the two free throw attempts per game is more concerning than the percentage he's shooting from the free throw line. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I I think his because I his ability to get to the rim is second to none. Um, but he just is he he's almost the inverse of Springer where he is completely avoiding contact almost every time because I, according to synergy, when he was around the basket, he was in the 72nd percentile um, in points per possession. So it's not like he's a bad finisher. It's just, he's all of his finishes are these acrobatic finishes where he's contorting in midair and avoiding contact. So, and if he keeps finishing at that high of a rate, I doubt it. It'd be nice. But it would be nice to see him start inviting and drawing more contact to, in, instead of you know flying through the air and crashing to the ground on every layup attempt. So I'm curious as to your best guess at his ceiling and floor. And I want to put a particular caveat on Davion Mitchell. Obviously, ceiling floor, you know, we're giving our best guess. None of these things are guaranteed. But I feel particularly like I need to give that caveat for Davion Mitchell just because of how much he's grown this past season. But in terms of ceiling floor for him, I think that the floor is decently high because even if he is like a 33% three-point shooter and everything from this past year was a total mirage. I think just his defensive playmaking skills and 30-ish percent three-point shooting would make him like point guard defender version of Matisse Tybel, which is not a bad place to be floor-wise. Ceiling, I think that his ceiling is like top half of the NBA point guard. I don't think he's ever going to be an all-star level of player, but I mean, he certainly grew a lot this past year, so maybe he does have a couple of all-star games in his future. But really, I think for him, the ceiling is very solid top half of the league starting point guard. Yeah, I I think worst case scenario, he's an elite point of attack defender off the bench. Um, And, you know, that in that scenario, it's the shooting this year was a fluke. He can't, he's not much of a passer and he's just kind of out there to cause havoc. Um, I think the more likely outcome is that he's Chris Dunn with a jumper um, where he's an elite point of attack defender um, and isn't a complete liability on offense. I I think he, he's a solid ball mover, especially once he penetrates. Um, I, I think he'll be able to shoot. So being a, a second guard on playoff teams is kind of the 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 ceiling I see for him because I I I know he took this massive leap from last year to this year, but he is twenty two or twenty three by draft time. So you know, in the traditional scheme or realm of player development, he doesn't have a whole lot more to go. That's fair enough. But, you know, we do every once in a while see these stories of these really, really late bloomers. I mean, Draymond Green was 23 when he averaged like two points a game his rookie year. And, you know, we've used Draymond as the ridiculous draft comparison for a number of different people. But, you know, the thing about those wild success stories is the fact that they happened at all 
means that there's at least a possibility that they could happen for the right kind of player in the right kind of circumstance. And Davion Mitchell might be that right kind of player in the right kind of circumstance. But generally speaking, I definitely fall more on your side where he's probably close to the end of his development curve. And and that's not a bad thing either, because I, I think from he's one of these guys that from day one will help contribute to winning basketball where, you know, I'm not sure he'll make a bad team good, but he could help make like a great team, a contender. If that kind of, if that thought process makes sense. Yeah, totally. So before we wrap up here, just a couple more quick sort of comparisons. So first of all, how do you think this group stacks up in comparison to the top five of this draft? And we've already sort of hinted at this. Really, I think that Zaire probably has the highest ceiling of anyone outside the top five. But really, the reason that any of the players that we're going to discuss in the 6 to 14 range are in the 6 to 14 range is because, you know, maybe sort of at a baseline, they have the same or similar sort of floor as the top five. But the sort of all NBA ceiling that most of the top five has isn't there. I think that if I could say anyone outside of the top five has that kind of ceiling, it would be Zaire. But Springer and Davion Mitchell definitely are the kinds of guys who we both think will be solid NBA players at worst, which is sort of how we viewed the top five in those discussions. But the ceiling just isn't the same. Yeah, after you get out of that top five range, the next, however you order your next kind of 12 guys, really, there are very few orders where I'm really just perplexed and wondering what thought process went into that ranking. Cause I, I think it can be really fluid in you know, this next cluster of guys um, with these three specifically, you know, I, I, I think Zaire has the best chance of hitting that star upside of hitting that all-star potential. Um, I don't see really Springer or Mitchell having that, potential um i i think that they both are more more role player bound um which by no means is ever a bad thing because every team needs those and i i I think springer will be more of a project to get to you know to get to that high level starter but you know outcome uh and i just kind of see davion being kind of a plug and play guy from day one Yeah, I think the 6 to 20 range in this draft is pretty flat in that you could make an argument for someone at 6 and also make an argument for the same person at 20. And I think that of that sort of flat 6 to 20 range, it's really just going to depend on the teams that are drafting there and the guys that have already been taken by the time those teams get there. But... I think with this three in particular, Zaire probably has the best odds of falling out of the top 20 or so, but I think ultimately that you could make a very strong argument for any of these guys in that number six spot. It's just, you know, as we mentioned, maybe that's way too hype for Davion given, you know, that mostly being due to a sort of tournament bump, but all three of these guys you could reasonably see in the top 10. It's really just going to depend on, you know, this is stupid to say, it's going to depend on how the teams see them. But I certainly would be shocked if any of these guys falls out of the top 20. And I think Zaire is the one that's got the highest chance of doing that. But I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, I I think that'd be a massive mistake. And really short-sighted of the type of player he could be um because when you're picking in the top 10 it means you're a bad team and bad teams need to make some home run swings and that is exactly what Zaire Williams is and you know if if the magic like in that kind of seven or back half of the lottery um I would love to see like the magic take a swing at Zaire Williams with that Chicago Bulls pick um, I, I think he could be really interesting there. So 
just can it, it's very team dependent obviously it always is every year so when when people get in a huff about oh you had this guy ranked eight and he got drafted 16 you're an idiot it's well yeah I, I didn't have it it's not a mock draft it's projection it's where I would draft them in a vacuum because of what I think they could be and that six to 20 that six to 18 you know that general range it's really fluid this year um, which I think makes this draft just incredibly fascinating all right anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap up uh I, I think we covered it pretty thoroughly I'll have words coming out on basketball stuff this week Keep an eye out for it. How incredibly specific of you. And it's hell of a tease. (laughs) There we go. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find his work on hashtag basketball and at Canis Hoopus. And you can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find my written work on hashtag basketball as well. We just did what I believe will be the last edition of our weekly power rankings for this season always fun to do that and always fun to do that with tyler as well i also did a write-up of the nets nuggets game on saturday for netsrepublic.com so if you want to check that out please go ahead and do that if you've been enjoying the podcast please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using that's always much appreciated on our end And if you have any feedback, you can feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.